This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. James Tu, Senior Director of Content and Communications at Trine University, and I want to welcome you back to Faculty Focus. This podcast features interviews with Trine University faculty members about their current research and their insights on issues impacting us all today. My guest today is Allison Todd, Assistant Professor in Trine's Frank School of Education. In addition to starting her fifth year of instructing future teachers here at Trine, Professor Todd has experience as an elementary and middle school classroom teacher and is also the mother of two elementary-age children. Today we're going to talk about the challenges students are facing as they return to school this fall after the COVID-19 outbreak this spring. Allie, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, James. Well, from your perspective as a former classroom teacher and as a current mom, what impact did the disruptions caused by COVID-19 this spring have on elementary and middle school students? A big one. I think that's an understatement, and I'm sure a lot of classroom teachers and parents are in agreement on that. Something that is probably not new information is that children really respond well to structure and routine and predictability in their day-to-day lives, and especially school. So to have something so huge in their normal schedule be disrupted so suddenly has had and is going to have a lasting impact. I've seen it in my own children, a rising third grader and a rising kindergartner. You know, during the spring when school was still in session via online learning, um, we tried our very best to maintain a routine and a schedule and dragged out a big whiteboard to hang in the kitchen and changed it every day and, you know, which hours will be academic and how we're going to break up the day. And that was challenging after a while. I mean, my children were both home from March 13th on through the end of May. So over time, that got to be daunting. And personally, I'm not the greatest with um, creating discipline and, and a schedule on my own. I usually rely on the structure provided to me by work and being um, in classes and you know meeting with students and other faculty members. So creating that structure for myself and for my kids, that was a challenge. Um, and I think over the summer, initially, it was a nice break to not have that routine and that added pressure of, oh, we have to do X, Y, and Z and get the virtual learning done and submitted. But now, you know, these last few weeks of summer, it's been very unstructured. And I think everybody's just craving to have that routine back. And the lack of social interaction with especially young school-age children, but even middle schoolers, high schoolers, um, college students, I'm sure, missing their peers and not getting that not direct instruction on social interaction, but it's learning from experience on how to collaborate with other people and learn appropriate social skills through modeling or seeing others and how they interact. Um, That's going to have a big impact long-term on school-age children, I think, not having that daily connection with their peers and, and that practice of socializing. It's, it was a big component that has been missing for five months now. So we have done our best. We're really lucky. Personally, we live in a neighborhood with lots of school-age kids and 
friends from classes and um, in the same grade level. So they've had a lot of outside playtime with friends and peers, but not everyone's so lucky. Um, So trying to create those opportunities for social interaction while still maintaining social distancing and keeping your family and other kids safe, it's really a challenge, but it's also very important to look for those opportunities or create them when you can. Do you think with not having that opportunity to socially interact, do you think that's going to, for students who do return to in-person classes, going to create more discipline problems? I think initially, when students see each other for the first time after months, they're going to want to give in to that impulse of, you know, talk to each other and invade each other's personal space and hug and high five and you know, just kind of make up for lost time. But hopefully as time passes and, you know, the weeks go by, they'll get back into that normal routine of school. And um, I'm sure educators will do an outstanding job of, you know, modeling expectations and what this is going to look like and the reasons behind it when they're in school, why we need to maintain social distance, why we can't hug our friends. I know Plenty of teachers, myself included when I was in the classroom, end their day with hugs or high fives or handshakes, and that's not going to be a possibility moving forward for, I don't know, the foreseeable future. So just small things like that, I think, will be noticed. Their absence will be noticed. But I think everyone says children are resilient and they'll adapt to the new normal, but I think because of the uncertainty, it's created a lot of anxiety in children because they don't know what's going to happen. And you can see a lot of, I could see a lot of behavior problems arising from that anxiety. So we need to do the best we can to alleviate that anxiety and make things as predictable as possible. And I know there will be outbreaks and, you know, schools may have to go from in-person back to Um, distance learning or online learning, and we can't really foresee that, but prepare kids as much as you can and as much as appropriate for all the possibilities of what could happen and really being transparent with the reasons why and, you know, this could happen if we don't maintain social distance or if we don't wash our hands, we could end up with this consequence or this result. Um, I think that's really important to share as much information with kids as you can so they're not blindsided and, and really surprised by changes that might happen in the future. Kind of going back to the impact of disruptions, too, you mentioned about, you know, having the kids at home and going through their lessons and everything. And, you know, obviously, like you and I were in a situation where we were able to work at home, but in a lot of cases, Parents, you know, who were essential workers, you know, particularly a a single family home wouldn't have had that option. What kind of impact do you think it had on on those kids who, you know, maybe even didn't have the structure of having that much guidance just because of the situation they're in? It really breaks my heart. And I know I'm speaking from personal experience and it is I am coming from a place of privilege because I have the training of an educator and I know what are best practices for teaching elementary age children. So I had that kind of ace up my sleeve the whole time. Obviously not everyone has the same training I have and I'm lucky enough to have 
high-speed internet at home and my children have access to the technology they need and it's nowhere near equitable across all families that attend public school or any school for that matter. It's never a guarantee. Um, I talked to a few teachers in the area, some even recent alumni from our program at Trine that you know, have a wide variety of both you know, technology from the district. Like my children are in DeKalb Central and starting now in kindergarten, they have access to one-on-one Chromebooks. And my daughter was able to take her Chromebook home and it was fantastic. But if she didn't have that option, we would have been able to supplement that. Um, But in other districts, they don't have the one-to-one option. They didn't even have enough computers or tablets to send home with children um, so they could have access to online learning. Schools in Michigan, just over the border, were resorting to, you know, sending home photocopied packets of worksheets and, you know, sending home pencils and crayons and all the consumable resources that they would have unlimited access to at school, they might not have at home. The responsibility was put on schools and teachers to provide all of that, kind of replicate mini classrooms in every home for every one of their students, which is a huge burden to schools and teachers that are already really strapped for financial resources to take care of those needs um, when it's just a classroom set rather than creating 30 sets to send home with each one of your students. So, you know, schools can do everything they can and they can create meaningful learning experiences either through traditional photocopied packets or online learning, um, but it's not going to be equitable for all students because not all students can be guaranteed the same resources at home. Um, You kind of mentioned that you've been in touch with some trying graduates, and I'm sure you've had contact with probably former colleagues that you taught with. What kind of impact have the disruptions of this past spring had on teachers? An earth-shattering impact, I'm sure. Um, I think there is a fallacy that, oh, teachers have the summers off and they can relax. And in an average year, that's not even the case. I mean, every teacher worth their salt is pursuing professional development opportunities or additional training or taking additional courses um, or looking for new best practices to bring to their students and bring into their classrooms or repurposing and refurnishing furniture they find at yard sales to create flexible seating for their kiddos. So it really is a 12-month position. You're never in a spot where you can just turn off that teacher brain. It's a hard habit to shake, and you can't really go through life not thinking like, oh, that table on the side of the road for free, that could be a great you know, small group workspace. I should grab it and toss it to the back of my car or You're in a bookstore or the library, you're looking at new titles and thinking of specific kids like, oh, you know, that one student that really just isn't engaged in reading, but he's really into this topic. I found this book. I'm going to get this and bring it in. It's always there. And that's a heavy workload in the summer regularly, but then to add this whole additional layer of not only additional work-focused responsibilities of How can I make the content accessible to students, whether we're in the classroom practicing social distancing or if we're doing virtual learning, getting it out to all the students and making it as equitable as possible, but then also considering your own personal health, 
Um, if you have underlying conditions or family members, you don't want to bring anything home if you're in a position where you're going to be teaching face-to-face, you know, procuring things like hand sanitizer and masks and rearranging your classroom and all of these other things that just wouldn't be considered in a normal year that are a top priority this year because of the situation. Um, I think it has got to be overwhelming. And, you know, usually about this time, probably even a few weeks ago, teachers started to kind of focus more in on, okay, I'm preparing for the year, I'm planning my first few weeks of lessons, you know, you're making copies, you're laminating, you're doing all those preparation activities, and now things are changing so fast. I was speaking to a recent grad who works in the area, and she told me that in the last few weeks, things have changed five, six times already, where it's you know, not entirely starting over from scratch, but really having to make big shifts in any plans they had already worked through um, and constantly getting feedback from families and community members, um, hearing new guidelines from the state and higher. Um, it's, it's a constantly moving target. So it's a huge responsibility, and I don't envy any classroom teachers facing that right now. From the ones you've had communication with, how did they handle the switch for those who had to do it to online learning? I think the educators I've spoken to, they've handled the switch to online as best as they can. Most teachers I know always feel like they can do something better. I don't trust teachers that think, oh, these lessons are perfect. I'm never going to change them. I always tell our students, teacher candidates to, if you're in a classroom with uh, a teacher and they have a functioning, constantly used file cabinet where they're just pulling the same things year after year, be a little bit wary of that because great teachers are always looking for ways to improve. But I think this was so much so fast to shift your entire curriculum, every content area to, for some teachers, a totally new platform. I think, you know, they're handling it as well as possible, but I haven't spoken to, and I can't imagine there are many teachers that retrospectively look back on how the spring semester ended and thought, that was perfect. I loved every part of that. So I think, you know, a lot of teachers probably spent a good amount of the time over the last few months in the summer, you know, learning about tech platforms and how they can function a little smoother and a little better now that they had a couple weeks, couple months head start, um, knowing that the fall semester was coming, rather than leaving school on Friday afternoon and thinking everything was going to continue as normal and getting an email alert Saturday afternoon that we were shifting entirely to online learning. Um, so I think the place where they can probably find a little bit of solace is that they had some time to prepare for different options over the summer, but still I think it was, and still is, a very stressful and unnerving experience. You kind of mentioned that things are still very much in flux for this fall, and even um, news from local school districts uh, seems to be changing from week to week with, I know that some of the Fort Wayne schools have pushed back their start times. Some school districts were looking at not having masks, and now masks are being required by the, the state. 
Um, with so much still changing or uncertain, what can classroom teachers do to prepare for this fall? One of the first things I would do would be to start with the physical space in the classroom. Um, I know when I was teaching in elementary school, um, I would cluster my desks together. And so I would have four or five, six students with their desks pushed together to create small groups. When I was a middle school teacher, we had tables. We had tables where three students would sit, and usually two of those tables would be pushed face-to-face, so you'd have six students in a small group looking for ways to modify that, spread students out as much as you can, look for furniture that would accommodate those needs. Uh, One of the best pieces of advice that I give our teacher candidates is when you get your first job, one of the first people you need to make very good friends with is the head of the custodial staff because they have the keys to the storage rooms. And if you need extra desks or you need a new chair, um, they're the people that can help you get that. So I think custodial staffs and um, grounds crews and operation crews in different districts, they're working overtime, I'm sure, going deep into the storage facilities to try and find individual desks to replace group tables um, so you can maintain that social distancing. I know a huge thing that has come up the last five, ten years in public school is flexible seating and having soft seating options like love seats or sofas and those can't really be used because if you're going to have an item with such a big footprint in your classroom but only one student can sit there at a time, it's eating up too much real estate, so to speak. So to move all of that out of your classroom and reconfigure everything. So that way you can start approaching, okay, this is the space I'm working with and how can I instruct using this? Um, I think there's been such a shift since I became an educator almost 20 years ago away from individualized desks and rows. And now here we are, you know, at a moment's notice, that's what we have to go back to. And if it's even possible, um, I know there are plenty of classrooms out there that have class rosters of close to 30, more than 30 students, and trying to find a way to configure 30 students in a typical classroom while maintaining six feet of distance in each direction, I don't know how realistic that is um, or how possible that is unless you want to start hanging desks from the ceiling. So I think that's probably going to be the biggest and most immediate challenge that teachers would have to address. And then once you figure out, okay, it is possible, I can provide instruction for my whole class in this space, then you can start looking at best practices of how to do that given the physical parameters that you have. Um, I think, you know, teachers are creative and resourceful because we have to be. And I've seen a lot of things online being shared of, you know, here's how I created um, barriers in my classroom with PVC pipes and clear shower curtains from the dollar store. And I can, you know, create these dividers for all of my desks and it cost me this amount of money. Or, you know, here's a great resource, an online retailer where you can buy tables that are sturdy but inexpensive and they ship really quickly. I think there's a lot of camaraderie between teachers and helping teachers out. That's always existed, but now it's taken on this new spin or this new facet. Outside of education, a lot of people have said, you know, we're all in this together, but teachers have really 
kind of banded together and circled the wagons to support each other and help each other out. Because if you're a classroom teacher and you're looking at a problem that you have in your room, chances are you're not the only person struggling with that same issue. So look for ways to collaborate and reach out to other teachers and, you know, talk to your the other teachers at your grade level or in your district and see how other people are approaching solving these problems. I think that's going to be really important and beneficial. What do you think elementary and middle school is going to look like this fall? I think the first few weeks will be really hard and really exhausting. The first six weeks of school is always tough. And the focus for me when I was in the classroom was always establish those routines and procedures and really hammer them for the first six weeks. The academic instruction will come, but get students comfortable with how the day is going to go and the routines and what you expect from them, both from their academic performance, but also their behavior. I think that's just the same idea, just ratchet it up and with bigger consequences. So how you get a class of 25 kindergartners from the front door to the classroom while maintaining social distancing, while every other grade level is doing the same thing, those kind of logistical challenges and getting students comfortable with the new normal, washing hands and wearing masks for extended periods, I think that's going to be a big part of the first couple weeks of school. And I think physically it's going to be different. I think the day-to-day is going to be very different. A lot of schools are switching to eating lunch and breakfast in the classroom. And again, it goes back to that custodial staff. I feel so terrible because most schools have carpets and now you're having school-age kids eating and drinking milk and on carpet. Then maybe that's just an issue for me. But you know, switching classrooms for cooperative arts and going to PE and going to art, now it's cooperative arts teachers will visit classrooms and art on a cart and somehow when the weather turns and it's too cold to have physical education outside, then you're doing things inside and maintaining social distance. It's a real challenge. So I think every aspect is going to look different and that's going to be an adjustment for everybody involved, even families and parents. I know one of my favorite parts of the school year is being able to volunteer in my children's classes. I've taught JA the last couple of years. I don't know if any of those things are possible. I know, of course, schools are going to limit the amount of visitors they have in the building, even the amount of people they have in the building. So a lot of things are going to look different. All those great family night activities, like the school where my children are, they do a fantastic job of providing those community building events like literacy nights and the book fair and musical performances. I think those are either all going to be postponed indefinitely, maybe not happen at all this year, or they'll look very different. Um, So it is kind of a loss for a lot of different aspects in schools, which is sad. Kind of just touched on this a little bit, but you're talking about the new normal and everything that we have to do to prevent the spread of COVID-19. From a student perspective, what are some of the drawbacks of what's going to have to be done? I think the more significant drawbacks will come from a strictly online learning platform um, because that social interaction is so important to younger kids and all school-age children, really. I think that's going to be something that won't be able to be replicated. 
academically, you can create different experiences that will supplement a traditional instructional year, but I think you can't replace those social interactions and those events, and I think that's going to be a loss for kids, for sure, Um, and a loss for teachers. Some of my favorite memories as a teacher are, you know, field trips and activity-based experiences that I get to share with my students, and that's where you get the memories. I mean, I think if you ask any random person on the street, like, what is your strongest memory as an elementary school student, they're not going to tell you about some phenomenal social studies lesson or this great worksheet they did one time. It's going to be those experience-based things that really stick out and shape their memories of their school experience. So missing out on all that um, is a loss for sure. Are there any positives from what's happening or any silver lining we can take out of this cloud? I think there's possibility for a silver lining. I think um, the current situation has really shined a very bright light on the inadequacies and inequities that are going on in schools that just we could function with, but they weren't functional. That access to technology, that support at home, all those inequities that we've kind of just accepted as the norm, in this new normal, they're not acceptable. They're not going to work. So we have to really look at the structure and figure out a way to make things equitable for all students and ensure that every student has access to the same quality of education regardless of the home they're coming from or the family they're coming from. And really acknowledging that schools are more than a daycare for seven and a half hours, eight hours a day, that they should really be more of a center for communities because they provide so many more services than just academic instruction. So many children rely on schools to get two meals, if not more, a day, and medical attention for those places that have school nurses full-time, and connection and security from educators and adults that work in schools. Those kind of things are vital to a child's success, not just in school, but in life. So acknowledging that schools are more than just academics and a place where your children are supervised um, and really providing the resources and the funding so that we can provide that equity um, for all students and fill their needs wherever they may be. You mentioned a little bit about uh, funding, but I mean, in terms of dealing with this inequity, what would the funding do that could help reduce the inequity between students? I think the most obvious answer is providing technology across the board because that is one way that, you know, if this pandemic had happened 20, 25, 30 years ago, it would be a totally different thing. We have the opportunity to provide instruction just in a different format for those that have access to the technology. So that would be the most obvious place to start. But even if you send a child home with a computer, that doesn't mean they have high-speed internet access at their house. So really looking at schools and the infrastructure to 
make them more of a community center and maybe extend the hours where you can go and use the facilities and use the internet um, and have access to the resources that are there that you might not have at home. And that may be expanding on the physical structure of schools, making them larger, making bigger meeting spaces, um, more meeting spaces, and providing funding for personnel and educators and adults that are there for students um, in not just instructional or educational facets, but you know, providing enough funding for school counselors and school psychologists and full-time school nurses, having access to medical care and dental care and resources in a centralized location that are provided for, that you're not assuming families will take care of outside of school. You can say, yes, come here and get your education, but we can also provide this service or that service or counseling or you know, more food security, expanding the idea of what schools should be. And you, you've talked a couple times here about, you know, that school is more than just imparting knowledge, that it's socialization. In some cases, it's lunches, health care. Are there any ways that if we're forced back into extended distance learning that we can meet those goals? And if so, how? I don't have experience personally with official channels to make sure that happens. Um, But I also know teachers aren't the kind of people that see a problem or an issue with a student and ignore it. Um, They take it upon themselves to do what's best for their student or that child. And you know, if they notice that a child is coming in hungry or they look really tired and are falling asleep or they're not checking into their online learning, there are those flags that keep you up at night as a teacher. And most teachers that I know will take it upon themselves to try and solve those problems. From my experience, I can't point to a systematic way where that's been approached and and it's an established thing, but I hope, you know, there's a possibility of that changing because of our current situation. So I don't want to assume that I, my experience is a universal experience. I'm sure there are schools out there that, you know, have systematic approaches in place already and up and running and that's amazing. I want to know where those places are, but just from my experience in rural elementary school and an urban middle school, I have not seen that already in place. Looking ahead to your fall teaching future educators, how has the pandemic changed what you're planning to cover in your classes? The best thing about our program at Trine is that we have our teacher candidates in schools early and often. I teach the first education class that most of our students take, and it's a 100-level class. So typically, first-year students enroll in that class. And I refer to it as kind of an educational buffet because some students will come in to try and thinking, I definitely want to be a teacher. Uh, This is really what I want to do, and not know the nitty-gritty of 
what it takes to be an educator. They've never really seen the sausage made, so to speak. So we provide this course where they go into schools and they do a 50-minute observation at every level. So we have them in a primary classroom, K-1-2. We have them in upper L-Ed, 3-4-5, a middle school observation, a high school observation. And the last few years, we've taken them on um, a visit to Oak Farm Montessori School to give them an idea of an alternative setting to a traditional public school. And every semester, I share this with every cohort that I teach in this course that First, I was not smart enough to major in education as an undergraduate, and so it took me some time to figure out that education is what I wanted to do, and so I started my career in education going through a graduate program where I wasn't really in schools as a course requirement until the last semester of my graduate program for student teaching. And just like our program for student teaching, you have a student teaching seminar course that you are enrolled in the same semester you're doing your student teaching. And for mine, we met the week before our student teaching began, and there were 12 of us enrolled in the seminar. And after the first week of student teaching, there were 11 of us because someone got all the way, almost all the way through a master's program, and after a week in schools, found out that that was not the path they wanted to pursue and pulled the chute. So we... Don't let that happen to our students. We get them in schools over a 1,000 hours before student teaching even begins. Um, So there are practicums embedded in almost all of our courses. And they're a huge part of the content we cover and the requirements we have. So having all of those practicums and placements in school, and we have our students all over, not just Northeast Indiana, but into Michigan and Ohio, and every school, because districts in the area are approaching the fall semester differently and are going to have different regulations and different guidelines. Like I said earlier, some schools are going to limit the amount of visitors they have in the building. We're not even quite sure yet what the possibility is to have practicums this year. Um, Student teaching is a little different. Our student teachers that, you know, have been placed for the semester because they'll be there all day, every day, it's a little different than having um, a teacher candidate come in for an hour or two every day for a few weeks. So our student teachers are going to be fine, but Dr. Ashley Overton and I teach a group of classes for fourth-year students in the fall semester called the Elementary Methods Block, and that covers instructional methods for language arts and social studies, science and math, incorporating art into the elementary curriculum. And for our dual license majors, we have a special ed methods course in that block as well. And part of that block of courses is they have a practicum that can range from four to seven weeks. And it's all day, every day. I like to call it JV student teaching because it's the semester, usually the semester before you have your full semester student teaching placement. And so that would be if those placements aren't able to happen for that practicum, we would have to recreate four to seven weeks of content for our courses. So things like that, that we've just taken for granted maybe, or we've been lucky enough to have the benefit of those opportunities for our students up until now, we're going to have to do a lot of restructuring 
and it's really going to be on a case-by-case basis and a course-by-course basis. Some courses, the practicums are much more imperative to meeting the course outcomes. Other courses, it's a nice to, but not a need to have. So we've talked a little bit as a department over the summer and shared ideas back and forth, but like I mentioned earlier, with districts changing their plans and guidelines and regulations so frequently and so quickly the last couple weeks, it's been really difficult to have a set plan. So we're going to be as flexible as we can be. And, you know, we always want to look for the best experience for our students, but we have to respect the local schools that have been gracious enough to have us in their schools up until this point. Um, And we want to maintain those relationships once this is all over. So we're going to follow their lead, and I hope it works out as close to what we've traditionally done as it can get, but it's not going to be exactly the same as um, what our courses looked like last fall semester or any fall semester prior to that. So I guess we're crossing each bridge when we get to it. But um, other than that, I think if something happens and Trine goes back to an online approach for courses, I think our experience from the spring gave us a good foundation and I don't want to speak for everyone in the department but it seems as though everyone's fairly confident that we know what we're doing and we're so lucky to have Megan Tolan in our department who is a technology wizard shout out Professor Tolan and she deserves an award because we just all go to her with all our tech questions and zoom issues and she's been wonderful to have on staff uh, in the department but um you know, it's not always us asking her. She brings different resources to us all the time, which is great and only going to enhance our instruction even once this is all over. I mean, we will do whatever we can for our students to make sure they're prepared to go into the field as licensed educators, and hopefully things will go smoothly. Do you plan to focus more within the curriculum on, you know, preparing students who may you know, have to do e-learning as a professional teacher, or was that kind of already covered? Will you emphasize it more? Um, It was definitely already included in components, um, required components of our programs. Um, Like I said, Megan Tolan teaches one course called Ed Media Tech, which really has a heavy emphasis on incorporating technology into instructional methods. We also offer our students the opportunity to become Google certified, a level one Google certified teacher before graduation. Um, So those will still be in place, but I think it's obvious now that we have to really emphasize alternate options to just in-person direct instruction methods um, and look for variations on how to meet the same goals. But if you don't have that face-to-face in a classroom opportunity, here's three different methods that you could try, or um, here's a great online resource that you can share with students rather than this in-person group activity. Probably made this point way too many times already, but it's obvious there is a lot of uncertainty right now. What impact does that have on students who you know, are not elementary students who don't know if they're going to school next week or three weeks from now, who don't know if they're going to be in person or at home, you know, or is it something that 
maybe they're not as aware of, but maybe it's stressing out mom and dad. What kind of what kind of impact is it going to have on all these families? Um, I think it's going to have a big impact, and it may be short term, it may be long term. This is the thing that's the most heartbreaking to me is that we don't know what the long-term ramifications are going to be to the mental health of students. I know from my own children that I'm very lucky to have a very verbose eight-year-old who just last night had expressed that ever since the spring, she's had this really uneasy feeling um, and basically in her own words described just a consistent anxiety um, and feeling of unease. And I think everybody could relate to that over the last couple months. A friend in the neighborhood, her son, um, he's a rising first grader, went to tears the other day because he didn't want to go back to school because COVID would get him and take him away. Um, So those fears of the unknown and that uncertainty that kids are feeling can be really scary to especially young children, but all kids that just not knowing what could happen. So I think it's really imperative that we are as transparent as possible with students. Um, I mean, I'm not saying you have to give them every gory detail, but what's developmentally or age appropriate, be as clear as you can be and explain you know, this is what is happening, this is what could happen, and just, you don't have to have a huge sit-down, in-depth discussion, but constantly mention it or revisit the idea. Just the more exposure and the more comfortable students are with the possibilities, the better off they'll be, and hopefully it won't have devastating impacts, but this is for typical learners. Um, I think there are identified students that receive special education services and other supports um, that are on education plans that may not be as resilient or possibly not have the cognitive ability to understand even if you explain and are transparent. So it's that identified vulnerable population that I'm most concerned with. Um, And those students are particularly at risk because of social distancing or even if schools have to revert back to strictly online, things that are written into their individualized education plans may not be possible. So then their case managers and special educators will have to go back and rewrite those plans but still somehow meet the needs of those students. I think that's going to have the biggest impact possibly where – a lot of focus and resources really need to go is how can we ensure not just providing equity to average learners but or typical learners, but those identified students that need extra and additional supports, how are we going to meet their needs and ensure that all students are going to come out okay on the other side of this. I mentioned earlier that there are some districts that are talking about you know giving parents the option of doing in-person classes uh, versus doing distance learning. I also personally know other parents that are just saying, you know, I don't want to risk my child's year being disrupted again. I'm just going to homeschool them. 
what factors do parents need to weigh when they're considering whether to send their child to in-person classes or to do distance learning or whether to homeschool? I think the most important thing for parents to consider is do what's best for your family. Um, There's definitely not a one-size-fits-all approach to this, but I think no matter what a family decides or which way they choose, there's always going to be what-ifs. I was lucky enough to be a teacher before I was a parent. Um, I highly recommend it. But um, something that before I had children, I was all in with my job. I would stay in my classroom to an embarrassingly late hour, and I really loved working in my classroom and you know being the last person to leave the building. And something that no one really gave me fair warning about before I had children is that once you have children, you will never really feel at ease, either at work or at home. Because when you're at work, you're thinking, oh, I should be at home. I could be doing this with my kids. I could be doing that. When you're at home with your kids, you're thinking, oh, I really need to be back at school and I need to do, you know, make these copies or prepare this lesson or rearrange this space. I think the same is going to be true if you choose to keep your kids home for whatever reason. You know, the majority of the decision is right, but there's going to be that voice in the back of your head thinking, what are they missing out on? You know, what can in-person instruction provide that I can't, um, and vice versa. If you choose to send your kids to in-person school, you're going to worry and feel guilt about, you know, is this what's safe? Um, is this what's right? There are a million what-ifs that are going to keep you up at night. So I would recommend every family look at what's best for them. Hopefully it will give you a little peace of mind but I think there's always going to be those what-ifs. Do what's best for your family and try to not listen to the what-if voice. Other than being transparent, which you already mentioned, uh, what are some things parents can do to prepare their children for this upcoming school year? I think explaining the why behind all the changes that the children will experience at school it's much easier for kids to get on board if they understand why they have to do something. This is not a time for because I said so. Um, And kind of building up their endurance with mask wearing or practice appropriate hand washing. Um, Get one of those little sand timers that you can keep by the sink and flip the timer and make sure kids are using, you know, soap and they're washing for as long as they should be and really base level direct instruction on if you have to sneeze and you're not wearing a mask, don't sneeze into your hands, sneeze into your elbow, little things like that. How to greet somebody that you're really excited to see, but you know you can't hug them. Like what are some alternatives of what you could do and make it engaging and novel. And I mean, rather than give someone a hug, maybe teach your kids some phrases or words in sign language that they can sign to a friend and that'll be like a cool secret code that they can share. I mean, that's a really bad example off the top of my head, but I think along with all of that, the transparency, the practice, um, the direct instruction about little things, it's hard at times, but frame everything in a positive manner because whether you intend it or not, Students are going to come into school reflecting your outlook as parents. 
So if you're, you know, this is terrible, you shouldn't have to do this, but we have to do this, we got to get through this. If it's framed in a negative light or through a negative lens, children will pick up on that and model that behavior back. Um, and teachers, educators, adults working in schools, they are already going to have such a difficult job ahead of them in the next couple months. I would encourage everybody to look for ways to make it easier for educators and administrators and people in schools. And even if it's as small as helping your child find a positive outlook on all the changes or how things are going to be moving forward, it will be appreciated and it will be noticed by teachers for sure. So I think that's really important. Just try to keep it positive, even if you are gritting your teeth and putting on an Oscar-worthy acting performance to do it. Um, It really is going to have an impact on not only your child's experience at school, um, but also the educators and administrators and staff that they'll be in contact with at school. What can parents do to prepare themselves for the coming school year? Find backup child care, I think, would be a big one. If you're like me and aren't in the lucky position of having extended family or a tribe in the area, both my husband's mother and my parents are hundreds and hundreds of miles away. So we don't have that built-in safety net of family around. So we've started to look at, okay, if schools go back to online strictly online learning, but trying is still in person or things change from what we're currently planning on, how are we going to address that? We don't want the decision to be made and things changed and we're kind of left scrambling. Um, so I think that would be a, give a lot of parents peace of mind or families peace of mind to know that they have a backup plan in place, network. I'm sure we have willing students to come tutor or help out, but finding a safety net and creating your own tribe or chosen family in the area to help you out in a pinch, that would be a great place to start. And try to stay off social media um, when it comes to coverage because whatever schools decide and um, whatever guidelines are put out, everybody's going to have an opinion and nothing is going to make everybody happy. So reading a laundry list of all the negatives about you know, the decision your child's district has made isn't going to help anything. So, you know, read the news, be informed from reliable sources, but put a cap on it. And I have to start walking that walk myself because there have been nights where I just can't stop scrolling and it's like driving past an accident. You know you shouldn't look, but you can't help it. You, you need to get all the bad stuff. Um, try to avoid the bad stuff. Find help and support where you can. Um, and have contingency plans in place because this is a moving target and things are going to change with little to no notice. So be prepared for different options. And I think something that would be really beneficial to not only parents, but definitely to students as well, in the house, as much as you can, provide an environment for learning, whether it's... um, if your child's school goes back to strictly online learning or you know just moving forward have a designated area that is you know low distraction not on the sofa in front of the TV but a hard surface kitchen table kitchen counter 
wherever that may be and provide a space for your child to get their schoolwork done because even just a small change of the physical environment can help shift the child's focus from, oh, I'm just home hanging out doing my normal thing to I'm in this place or in this room or at this table. This is where I do my schoolwork. Um, That can have a big impact and be really helpful. I think that would be a small thing that you could do. And it doesn't have to be, you know, go out and buy a desk and materials and all this. Look at what you have. Is there a quiet corner that you can create a space that's special and specific for that purpose? Um, I think that'll be helpful for students for sure. Uh, What can parents do to help support their children's classroom teacher or teachers as we head into this fall? Ask what they need and be ready to help them. For me personally, it's difficult to ask for help, but I always have to remind myself that people wouldn't offer unless they wanted to. So if you're going to offer or ask a teacher, what what do you need? Follow through on that offer. And even if it's an extra box of dry erase markers or tissues or offer to cut out their laminated material, that's such a huge help. But look for ways to be supportive. Um, And it doesn't necessarily have to be monetarily supportive or buying resources. If the school allows it and you have, you know, the flexibility to volunteer in the schools or in the classroom, even after hours, and you can help out. I know there are teachers out there that would appreciate that beyond words. And give teachers your compassion. It is a scary time to be a teacher. It is definitely unsettling. So educators deserve our grace and our understanding. And no classroom teacher is the one person responsible for making the decision about school that you don't agree with. They have to do their job and follow directives they're given just like any other position. So remember that you're on the same team um, and keep open communication with your child's teachers. Um, If there's an issue you're seeing at home, maybe the teachers are seeing the same thing at school and you could problem solve together. And these are things that I hope families do any year, every year, not just global pandemic years. but look for ways to support educators and schools. They deserve it. You mentioned it's a scary time to be a classroom teacher. Do you have any words of encouragement you'd like to share to the teachers who will be getting ready to head back, hopefully head back into the classroom uh, in these next couple weeks? Remember why you got into it. I think it's very easy to be caught up in the big picture, systematic things that are happening, um, all the changes, you know, structurally, education-wide, all the scary things that are happening. But remember to focus on those connections with your students and the best parts of teaching. Um, I always tell our teacher candidates, you know, for every practicum or every note you get from a student that you made an impact on, every drawing that a student gives you, keep them. Keep them in a special folder or a box or a drawer in your desk and know where they are because there will be days where you will be overwhelmed and defeated and you have to go back to those tangible items to remind yourself about the good parts of education. 
I hope teachers can focus on that. Even if you have to write a reminder to yourself on a post-it note and put it on your computer, make an appointment every Friday at 2.40 when school has been dismissed or you've finished um, posting your online learning for the next week, sit down and make a top five best things about teaching or the best things that happened this week with students. Um, Just keep looking for the good and that'll keep you going because like I said, if you focus too much on all the scary, unpredictable, terrible things that are happening, um, it's easy to get overwhelmed. So look for the good in schools and in your classrooms and in your students. Once again, I'd like to thank Professor Allison Todd for joining me today for Faculty Focus. Be sure to check back at trineradio.com for new episodes as Trine faculty members talk about their research interests and the issues of the day. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.